Hi guys, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator of the Nerdist Writers panel. And oh man, I'm so excited for you to hear today's panel. Uh, it was such a treat to go and sit in with uh, about half of the writing staff on Sesame Street. Um, as you might imagine, I was giddy like a child. Uh, it's it's It was so much fun. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this so much. It's it is like and unlike so many of the other writers' rooms we've talked about. It's a very interesting conversation with the nicest group of people. Uh, as it was when I visited Breaking Bad, you know, these people are all so happy to be working where they're working. They love the work they're doing. They love the people they're working with. Uh, it's, it's always inspiring to visit a room like that. Uh, this opportunity came through one of the students from the Michelangelo Screenwriting Program, which is which was the two week um, workshop that I ran in Italy uh, earlier this year. Her name is Liz Hara, and I owe her a huge thank you for helping with this. Um, I'm actually going to put a little interview with Liz at the top of next week's episode. Uh, this one was long enough as it is, um, but but look forward to that. Uh, she is charming and also a great writer. Um, the Michelangelo Screenwriting Program was so much fun. It was a terrific opportunity. I know I've talked to you guys about it before. Um, please go check it out, michelangeloscreenwriting.com. Uh, Liz, is, you know, she's a young writer. She works on in Sesame Street at the workshop. Um, and in two weeks that she was there, she took a pilot from conception to, I think, a second or third draft, and a really good second or third draft. Um, and, you know, it was, it was really exciting. And there were a few people who participated in the workshop who were able to do that. Um, that could be you. Go to michelangeloscreenwriting.com and uh, find out about next year's program, Two Weeks in Italy. Uh, there's also a bunch of new stuff on there. It's a poke around the website, see what they got. But I, I can't wait. It was a great opportunity. I got a lot done uh, writing-wise as well. Um, and we'll talk in, in upcoming weeks about you know how you guys can get involved. Before that, this week... We are brought to you by The Walking Dead, The Fall of the Governor, Part 1, the third book in the Governor novel series by Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman and Jay Bonansinia. It's now available. This is the first half of a two-part Kill Bill-style finale to Kirkman's series, which explores the heart-wrenching and horrifying origin of the comic world's most infamous villain, Brian Blake, a.k.a. Philip Blake, a.k.a. The Governor. Get some more details at facebook.com slash walkingdeadnovels.com where you can learn more about the entire series and read sneak peeks for all the books. Um, that is our esteemed advertiser, uh, The Walking Dead, Follow the Governor, Part 1, facebook.com slash Novels. Go check it out. Um, they're good enough to keep us on the air. Is that what you call it? Anyway, here's the conversation with a bunch of the Sesame Street writers. My thanks to them. They were unbelievable. I want to go hang out in that room all the time. Uh, because, uh, Liz helped me set this up, she was good enough to bring me into the Sesame Workshop the next day, which was a whole other unbelievable experience. Really one of the highlights of my year, um, getting to walk around and kind of see them working on all the Muppets. Uh, Oscar was just hanging out there and seeing these Muppets in real life, um, is unbelievable. It's like seeing the most famous celebrity you've ever met, except you don't have to be cool about it. Um, you just want to run up and hug them. And frankly, I did. Um, so 
There are a couple of brief interviews that follow this long one with the writer's room, uh, one with the Muppet Wrangler and one with a costumer who's been there for some time, which I found absolutely interesting. So my thanks to everyone at the workshop, to all of the writers on Sesame Street, to everyone who helped set this up, including Liz. I hope you guys enjoy it. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. I'm going to let you guys do all the work here. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here uh, with the Sesame Street writing staff, or most, most of it, right? Like about half. Oh, wow. No kidding. I think there's nine of us altogether. I think so. Okay, so there there are five of us here. Um, Let's let's uh, starting with Joey. Let's go around and introduce yourselves and tell me uh, how long you've been with the show as well. Uh, Joey Nazarino started in '89 as a puppeteer. Started writing in '92. Uh, John Wyman, uh, I got here the year after Belinda. I think uh, 25 years ago. No kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Why would I kid about it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Chrissy Ferraro. I've been with the show since 89 and started writing in 93-ish. I'm Belinda Ward, and I guess I started writing the year before John, which was maybe 26 years ago. I think so. I can't do the math. I can't do the math. <laughs> right. There's a date in there somewhere. Something's wrong because I thought I was 25. Yeah, they're long. So they're 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 right. Right. So, yeah. He started about 85. Yeah. Nice. I started 86. I saw Oklahoma, the Oklahoma bit when I was still in college. You were What was Busted. the Oklahoma bit? This is great. Wait a minute. What, what was the Oklahoma bit? And let's get into this. <laughs> Oklahoma is the greatest bit ever written. The Oklahoma bit is the, uh, the high point of my career. <laughs> and he's and it's the done. first. And it was the first thing I ever wrote. Uh, it was just for Sesame. Yeah, it's just like for Sesame Street. And um, uh, it was an insert which was uh, intended to teach the letter O. You have to watch it a few times to, to figure it <laughs> out. But, uh, yeah, we frantically searched for what we're actually teaching, but we have a good idea. <laughs> but uh, there, was a, there was a format for uh, inserts in those which but Kermit the Frog was a movie director. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. You know, Kermit, yeah, supposed to, yeah, Kermit the Tissue box. Yeah, so Kermit, Kermit uh, would, would be on the set directing a film, and in this case he was directing uh, a movie version of Oklahoma. And um, uh, there was a character uh, uh, who um, belonged to a puppeteer named uh, Richard Hunt named Forgetful Jones. Mm-hmm. Sure. Forgetful's characteristic is cleverly embedded in the title. You <laughs> <laughs> couldn't remember things, which is useful if you're trying to teach something. And um, uh, the show got permission to use the original uh, orchestrations, and the bit consisted essentially of uh, Kermit uh, um, starting a scene, music would start, Forgetful would come in, and he was supposed to sing Oklahoma. But the first time he came in, he sang Oklahoma, so I had to stop and go back, and as you can see where this is going. They worked this way through. Maybe not. The vowels. I could do the whole. I could do all the vowels. They worked through all the vowels, and at that point, they had to uh, cut it because it was time for lunch. But it was, it was, um, uh, it was one very simple idea embedded in a very entertaining context, Mm -hmm. and 
perfectly performed by the by the puppeteers. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, and um, it's I, one of those great ones where you see Kermit go from really calm to just flustered mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my favorite thing. It's, it, it's a shame we don't get to write for Kermit anymore. And you know, I will say, in addition to that, it was. Um, the first time I went to the set to see something that oh, I'd written right. shot. And so it was the first time I really was exposed to watching these puppeteers in action. I mean, Hanson, obviously, but everybody. Uh, Marty Robinson, Jerry Nelson, I mean, they were all, everybody was part of this. And um, that was thrilling. I mean, wow. it really was like turning your material over to the, it was, the yeah. greatest actors of a certain kind in the world. Yeah, those original puppeteers are really mm-hmm. great. And Richard Hunt, in fact, he passed away in 92, but Richard, the first time I visited the set, I just visited as a guest. I was not a puppeteer, and I saw him just crack up the crew, and I was like, this is what I want to do for a living. I, I literally went home after seeing Richard <laughs> work and saying, that's, that's a job I wanted. And when was this? How old were I you? I was in college. Before, you know, before we get on, Molly did not get to introduce herself, so Molly, oh, you did you say how... Oh, I didn't house. say my name. No, that's say name. Wow. You just said you were here. You thought that's you were right. here longer. <laughs> Quickly say your name. So yes. Yes. Molly right. uh, well, I'll get back to that, because I do want to talk about it. Um, but, Molly, let's give you a moment. Um, what is your Oklahoma sketch? Oh, no. That's no <laughs> fair. greatest sketch you ever made. What has been the most satisfying to you or something that you saw that, you know, was executed in the way that you Star imagined Wars. it? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I just did a parody for the new Cookie Monster um, format, which is parodies of movie trailers. Mm-hmm. And I did the Star Wars, I did Star Wars, which we call Star S'mores. And because everything has to have a cookie involvement. Yeah, That's all it. the characters, we have all the characters as Muppet things in there. Really yeah, don't tell them that. I would imagine, I mean, and, and you guys, I, I do want to hear about your early days working here, because I would imagine it's like going to work with not just your favorite celebrities, but the people you grew up with who are also your, like, it presses a nostalgia button. Like, and I will tell you, like, I've been puppeteering. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> no, no. We're too old. I've been puppeteering for 24 years. <laughs> 24 years I've been puppeteering on the ground next to this person. If Carol Spinney is above me with Big Bird talking to me like, hey, Joey, I become five and I'm like, I love you, Big Bird. It's like insane. Mrs. Obama came on the set, right, to do her bit. She walks in, she sees Gordon, is like, can I give you a hug? And he's like, yes, of course. But it's like everybody becomes instantly fine. I I loved also Mrs. Obama's uh, security team. They came in and they were like little boys. They were like little kids. They were so excited to be there, and you'd expect them to be so serious, and they were just. And Colbert, we just did Colbert. Big, I was held an Oscar when because because Big Bird and Oscar were together, and I had to do Oscar mm-hmm. and Carol through the lines. And Colbert just looked at Big Bird and just started laughing like a little kid. He just couldn't take it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an amazing place, especially if you grew up with. Yeah. Well, sure, uh, but how do you? Um, how do you separate yourself from that to write for these characters? Just... I think the thing is, that, at least for me, is that they are so real to me. The characters are so real to me mm-hmm. that I don't associate puppeteers with them. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Joey. And then <laughs> when I show up on the set and you see that there are like 12 bodies that are trying to make your idea of work, and you're all, you know, there's not enough room for everybody. It's always, I mean, I've been doing this for all these years, and it's always a surprise to me that they're puppeteers. You would, <laughs> you 
would think after all these years, Belinda would realize how many people it took. To I'm really slow. Every time I do. But I mean, I, you know, I had um, a, a kind of a, a nitwit assumption that a puppet was a puppet, and that different people would show up and put the puppet on their arm, and, and that's what you know, whoever was available out there would would be Cookie Monster, be Bird, or be Ernie. And it wasn't until I actually came to work for the show that I realized, on the contrary, that these puppets were um, uh, specific to particular puppeteers and that their personalities and characters, and this is what Blenda said, um, were developments of who those actors were. And um, uh, so, you know, there, there, there does develop, the, the distinction between the puppeteer and the puppet begins to dis- disappear mm-hmm. because they're, you know, it, you're, you're dealing from somebody's neurosis who's got a sock on his fist as opposed <laughs> to the neurosis actually living inside the sock. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a fun group. distinction. It's well, a Oh, God. But, Joey, you talk about, you know, the golden age of Frank and Jim and um, Richard back then, but mm-hmm. the puppeteers now are just incredible. Yeah. They're, they're just as good. Um, We're like gods. They are. No, they are. And they're, they're, they make us writers look really good. It's true, you know, for, as, to, for writing comedy, these mm-hmm. guys are they so much fun. They sure. really know what they're doing. And that's what you hope for in any media. There's also an actor who can execute. Right. There's actually a weird alchemy with puppets that kids, I've had kids, like I interview a lot of kids that aren't scripted, but do interviews with kids. Mm-hmm. And one older kid said to me, uh, don't worry, I won't tell anybody your secret. And I'm like, what secret? That you're underneath Murray. I said, well, thank you. And then we go through the interview. And by like six minutes into the interview, she's asking Murray to come to her house for a play date. So I, uh, she, she knew. She knew at the beginning. And it disappeared. It just went away. That's wild. You also see in the studio, because Carol Spinney will have just his, his bird legs on <laughs> the top of him. And you see kids like standing next to him. They don't see the legs. They don't notice. And then they put the bird on. And then all of a sudden, they're, like, they're talking to him. And they take it off. And then he's just and gone. Conversely, when yeah. when they, people say, "Oh, I don't want my kid to see the puppeteer under the puppet," they don't they see don't, this. No. They're on the screen. They look right at the puppet, and yeah. they don't even notice the puppeteer holding it. The first time I brought my daughter to the set, she was really little, and uh, Jerry Nelson, who was the count, um, during a break, he came over uh, to say hi to her, and she had on a dress that had cherries on it, and so he was he was crouched down, and he had the count on his arm. And Laura was standing there, and the count was counting the cherries on Laura's dress. And I watched Laura look at the count, look at Jerry, look at the count, and she had no trouble. Whatever the process was for integrating these two separate entities, it was effortless. You know, it was wonderful. Yeah. And one of the, I must say, you know, I, my kids are uh, pretty grown up now, but uh, one of the huge pleasures of working here is is to involve your kids in what you do and, and the fact that they can actually understand what you do. You know, I could say to my daughter, see what Big Bird is saying? No, he's not making it up. <laughs> I put that down this on the <laughs> He remembered it and now he's saying, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what he's going to say next. <laughs> but that's a lovely uh, 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 Aspect of the job. That and all the PBS tote bags we get. Yeah, but unlike my son, where I pointed, he was watching it on TV, and I said, you know, mommy wrote that, and he said, I think I'll go watch it in the other room. It's nice to know you appreciate it. Lord. He couldn't take the size of your ego. <laughs> um, before we talk about how each of you came to be involved with this and your writing experiences, prior to Sesame Street. I'd like to talk a little bit about how the show has changed in the time you all have been here, because 
I think it, it probably has changed to some extent. It changes every year. It changes year to year. Well, let's, uh, tell me about that. Well, initially when we wrote the show, it was still sort of in the same way it was in the 60s, which was sketch, and it was based on the laughing format, which mm-hmm. didn't have a, It had a story that kind of went through the hour. Sometimes. Was, sometimes, sometimes, and sometimes it didn't. And sometimes it was just sketch, sketch, sketch um, throughout, and we would be responsible for, I don't know, 12 sketches within the hour, and then there'd be live action film. And then we six. decided six. Yeah, six plus a little close. Oh, six, Jesus. Yeah. And then they would come. Yeah, it was twenty, twenty-seven. <laughs> I was a lot. Um, anyway, so uh, then we changed and started doing stories on, uh, amongst the, along the half hour. And then it was we realized that I mean that was based on when kids really had commercials in their hmm. uh, in their programming. Uh, we, they watched adult programming, they were using right. commercials. And then we realized kids were watching mostly Nickelodeon and PBS Kids, and it was like 11 minutes. They were just getting 11 minute dosage of stories, doses of story, and there were no interruptions. So they'd lose, like, they'd start, if we did the interruption, they wouldn't follow the storyline. We're like, all right, let's collapse it down. And then it's changed to now we decided, you know, we're an hour long format, like, let's make it four shows, because kids, you know, mm-hmm. what do we do? Like, let's make it our own, like, programming block of an hour. And make individual shows. It started sort of with Almost World as the anchor of the show, and then it was like Sesame Street, The Street Story, Supergirl 2.0, uh, Abby's Flying Fairy School, or now Cookies, Crummy Pictures, or Elmo the Musical. Mm-hmm. So they became four sort of distinct separate shows. And, and we really do. We we have to pitch. They they say go create a new show for the show, mm-hmm. um, and we go off and as a group of writers and we and we brainstorm an idea so we sort of think like who's the best it could come from curriculum like Supergrower 2.0 with STEM which is like science, technology, engineering, and math or it could be just like hey we need something new for Elmo how do we refresh Elmo and come up with uh, those are fun. I mean I, I love those they're always challenging but they're really fun to develop a new format uh, tell, tell me a little bit if you guys would about the relationship with curriculum and how that feeds the creative process how that feeds what you guys do it really is now it does drive the bus. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Has it not always been that? Uh, you know, I feel like when I started, it was we did 110 episodes. So yes, there would be a there'd be a curricular focus for the season, right? We'd have a meeting with them. But over 110 shows, we're not doing. You know, maybe a 10 percent of those shows are about that giant curricular hmm. focus. Also, the curriculum, uh, at least when I started here, was as fat as the phone book. Mm-hmm. For those of you who remember the phone book, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it had. You could find almost anything in there and make it the basis sure. of sketch, uh, but the um, you know research now has been you know that has been boiled down so that the the curriculum goals of a particular season are are much narrower and clearer. And, and it, just became, it, it became, became frustrating. A few sketch. years ago, it became that the curriculum goals were so uh, much more sophisticated that we didn't understand. That. <laughs> yeah. We understand all twenty six of the letters, right? Usually not Q. But I got those, and when they said STEM, it's like. What is STEM? I don't even understand that. Yeah, we all sat in the room going like, yeah, oh, how do we write so what, STEM? so what do you do with that? Well, when we had to develop STEM, I mean, it's... <laughs> now, Super Grover, like, we started thinking, like, well, how do we teach this? And Super Grover seemed like uh, the thing to do. And honestly, honestly, when we pitched Super Grover as STEM, as sort of the STEM character that we would use most, research started to have a fit because Super Grover gets everything wrong. And they're like, how do you do it? But that actually became the thing that taught it Better because he got it wrong mm-hmm. so many times. We can and we know how to do that. We know how to do You've got it wrong. No, so actually, twelve times. Yeah, now, now with these more sophisticated goals, it's like you can't just do three episodes of STEM and try to move a needle mm-hmm. and have a kid learning. So it became 
we have to teach, uh, out of the 26 stories, we might do 10 STEM stories, and we, so we'll really focus down on all these super global bits of STEM, and now we're dealing with executive, with executive function. Again, when you heard executive function, go, what the hell are you talking about? Is that, that's my question. Yeah. <laughs> they like to teach kids how to not commit corporate malfeasance. <laughs> I understand this. Uh, it's, about, it's about controlling yourself and not, you know, and not sort of, uh, and for kids, they say that's like one of the number one things that will help them through life to be successful is huh. they can sort of um, delay gratification and control their emotions. That's they don't need to the alphabet. Right, the alphabet is actually... The alphabet will come. Did you actually say it's more important on an English school, this type of self-regulation is more important if you think about a kindergarten teacher trying to tame an unruly class? 45 years of teaching the alphabet? So what kind of story, when you're tasked with something like that? Well, I mean, there's two different... There's two different ways to do it. One is in the stories on the show, the street stories, and then you sort of have a range... Of, a, of goals, and actually, it came out of your first show. Was one executive function it was the first time we had that um, the curriculum meeting about executive function. It was just being in, 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 introduced to us, and you came up with the oh, cookie kind of source. Cookie kind of source. And that was like we realized. It, it, tell them about the cookie. Yeah, the idea was that uh, there was a, a club like a, you know whatever that word is for people who are wine fanatics, mm-hmm. uh, but this was a, a, a group of people who were cookie fanatics. And they traveled from restaurant to restaurant, uh, places which had special cookies, and very sort of a feet group of. And, and so they come to Hooper's store because Alan at Hooper's store, it turned out, uh, was uh, loved to make cookies and a whole variety of cookies. And, and, and um, uh, needless to say, it was important that Cookie Monster not be around when this occurred. Yeah, Alan's very nervous. Alan runs Hooper's store. <laughs> if you don't know, he's our character who runs Hooper's store. He's very nervous. He's dressed in the tux. Chris, another one of the humans, says, well, what the heck's going on here today, Alan? There's cookies laid out on beautiful silver trays. What's going on? This club is coming. It's very important to me. Thank gosh. You know, cookies away. Cookie away. Is, 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 is in New Mexico. Something happened, and, and needless to say, walked in in the third minute, of the, or the second minute, or maybe the first 30 seconds of the show. And the whole show came about keeping him away. Keeping him away. And then David, uh, David Hyde Pierce comes in as the leader of the yeah, club, great. and he was awesome. And uh, But it became about Cookie wanting to join this, because all they got to do was try mm-hmm. cookies. And But there was a very specific way that they tried cookies. Like, why did you to take a little nibble? You had to... To just smell it first, and Cookie, he just looks at it. He's like, "Oh, Cookie!" and just wants to dive into it. So it was him controlling himself, and that became the first thing. And go, wow, Cookie's actually really good at teaching this because if he really wants something bad enough, how can he control himself long enough to eat it? Um, and then when we started to do the show, we started to think about what can we do as a format to teach this. And then Cookie's crummy pictures came out of it, thinking, well, uh, like Star Wars, the bit that Molly's talking about. I think it's the perfect example because they introduced the show starring, you know, uh, whatever the Luke Skywalker parody and Flan Solo, who's played by Cookie, and his partner Chewie, who happens to be a cookie. <laughs> and it's like, how can he want to just eat his partner throughout the whole thing? So, how do you control yourself long enough to, uh, to not eat your partner? Not to commit to, cannibalism. To, right. right. <laughs> Actually, to save the princess, how do you not eat the cookie that's your partner? So, it, it, he became this great character to teach. That's very We've used, uh, you know, other characters do it too, mm-hmm. but he's great for it. Sure. Um, tell me a, a little bit about how a show does come together. I mean, you guys are churning out a lot of shows every year, right? It's 26. It's 26. And then a bunch of But within that, it's, you know, within shows within shows within shows within shows within shows within shows and something, you know, most most writers, even if they're doing a sketch show, maybe have 12 a year to do. Really? Um, oh, I feel better now. 
so, so tell me about how uh, you know a show comes together. What's the process? What What does your year look like? What do you mean? So how do you how do you, how do I no I I guess we we usually go into Joey with an idea pitch an idea usually you know it's 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 a story idea for for this twelve minute story yeah. and we bat it around back and forth and then um, unlike other shows where you do treatments and outlines we just go off and write a first draft mm-hmm. and so I think that from my standpoint where I sit I think it's like a great way to work because you. You know, you have the idea, you go off and you write it. We can sometimes, look, you're working from a curriculum, so you just have to pick something from the curriculum, mm-hmm. unless you've agreed that you're going to write a stem show or right. something, but something from the curriculum will get taught I mean, at some point in that. And very often we don't, you know, we'll think we're teaching one thing and the research department will tell us, no, you actually taught something else. That's okay. But, and that, that kind of with, goes both ways, right? Like a curriculum will spur an idea or an idea yeah, will exactly, yes, spur Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's it's really it comes from so many different, I mean, sometimes it comes from just putting two different characters mm-hmm. together and you come up with something. Sometimes you look at, you know, like you're rummaging through this document trying to figure out, you know, trying great, to come up with an idea. The great thing about our, our characters, though, is like whenever there's a new curriculum or anything, you like, I remember with natural natural sciences which was season 40 we started doing science and one of the things was so you look at the document you go migration it's like oh my god well we have a bird like what if this real estate agent convinces him he should be migrating he should sell his nets and uh, it became this very emotional thing where he's like I'm migrating I'm leaving Sesame Street and we taught all about migration but it became an emotional story about Big Bird leaving the street um, so every year I find like the document especially with the new uh, the injection of new curriculum opens up a million stories because you just go, well, okay, how would our character react if we gave them that? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it, it, it is not an impediment. It's actually, it's a huge help. Sure. I mean, if the, you know, if the, if the assignment was 10 minutes of some wacky stuff that's happening on Sesame Street, that would actually be a lot more difficult than requiring something that's organized around something you want to sure. see. Having those parameters is also yeah. very helpful. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, so, so you bring your story idea to Joey, and as the head writer, he's to sign off, and you'll go off and write. He makes it better. He like sure. you know, <laughs> he really helps you through it. Then you go off and you write your your uh, first draft. Mm-hmm. And, and does the yeah, room ever see it, or it, is it pretty much? We did it sometimes very rarely. We don't write as a room. Occasionally, we did it. What do we do with? We did sort of did passes on Supergirl that we said let's try and. and yeah, we did a Supergirl. Oh, the first season we actually did those. Yeah, the musical. Sometimes, like if we have a new format, we'll mm-hmm. all join in the room and we all try to come up with ideas and, and break story for for each one, so that every we get we always get it right. The pilot. We always yeah, get, like, we get we write the, the pilot for right. the musical. We get wrote the pilot for the cookie. We get wrote mm-hmm. the pilot for Supergirl. But Supergirl, I remember Supergirl. We brought in a bunch of those ideas. First of all, we came up with a bunch of the ideas together, mm-hmm. and then we—I think we added jokes together on that. Like we brought in those ideas and sort of did a, a pass on them. I thought when you're when you're working as a group like that, and I'm always curious about this. You know, whether it's the Breaking Bad writers or the Simpsons writers, what what do each of you bring to the table? What do you think your strengths are as bring the writers? Bring cheese. <laughs> First and foremost, let's get this out of the way. The food is always the best part of a right food. Is good. We get good food here. <laughs> it's funny because I think we all have a very similar sensibility. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, you know, so that 
it, and we've all worked together for so long that they're really. And if you ever need a pun, Belinda is the friend. But there is a there is a shorthand I think you know that I, whenever I've gone out to do something with other writers or something where you realize that after working together for so many years, you know, you, it's like finishing somebody's sentence. Sure. And, I, and I think that that really uh, helps the show. What do you think that sensibility is, though? I mean. I do think it's a dual. Like, I think we all know how to write for the two levels. You know, mm-hmm. we try and make it funny for uh, grown up in the room because we do want that. We want kids to laugh with their parent, mm-hmm. and we want the parent to think, "Oh, this is a funny show for me too." Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what everybody here kind of has really. They're really good comedy writers. That's what. Whenever we're looking for new writers, I think we always we're looking for comedy writers. We're not looking for educational. That's how I was curious about. That. Yeah, yeah. we all come from a comedy background. I also think that that. That that skill to be able to write for both the parent and the kid, both of them watching at the same time. I've had people have talked to me. I've asked me about it. I find it indescribable. I mean, I, I find that there's no way to break down yeah. what the how you do that, and that some people just get it and some people don't. Yeah, because some people are like you, it's funny, but you go, this is not. There's nothing here for the kid to hang out, hang on to. And I think it, I think our characters are immensely valuable there because if we put our character, if our characters really care about whatever it is that they have to care about in the show. I think the child relates to those characters in such a way. And then, you know, the humor is impossible to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, want, I want to get back to um, the individual characters in a minute, uh, but let's, let's put a cap on this just process for you. Uh, so you have the script. Does it go to executives? Well, we're, to we're, very, we're lucky to be very autonomous, autonomous for a good portion of the ride. They leave us alone for the most part. Research does see it, and if they see something that they want to flag, like that's way off the mark on what we want to teach, they will mm-hmm. call me and say, before you talk to Molly, before you talk to whoever, just let her know this is what's shocking. Can you give me an example? Give me an example. We just had a Well, I'm trying to think of a good one that was really... Uh, <laughs> I have one that we fought back against, so I don't know if that actually worked. Uh, I would love because, to hear that. Because, no, because well, it, it was. I mean, I, I mean, there was, because, we just did this thing now where it, it's um, uh, Old Mother Hubbard comes into Hooper's store and she's got, not Old Mother Hubbard, the little old lady who lives in a shoe. Mm-hmm. She comes into Hooper's store and Telly's there helping Alan for the day. And she comes in with uh, these kids and these kids are running rampant around the store and she's, she goes off to uh, to go to yoga class. <laughs> They're like, she can't just leave the kids there. She's like <laughs> abandoning. I'm like, first of all, they're twelve little muppet kids. It's not like she's abandoning them. She's just going to yoga, so they did make me add in the line, and I just had the reason. I'm hearing about this for the first time. <laughs> I wrote this script. I'm very eager to see. They did make me add in the line, but she goes, you know, you can watch them. Something like this. Like you can watch them. Right? I'll, I'll be on for. You just watch them and give them some food. I had to give them that because. Oh, that really, fixes it. Well, <laughs> they don't really agree to it, but it was uh, it was a tough. one. <laughs> uh, but, but that's not what you asked. You asked like if a script comes in. That's not really a research. That was question. research. It oh, was research. Research yeah. didn't want them to leave. It was research that was. It's a mother about. leaving her children in a strange place mm-hmm. with strangers to go. Like, we that. know Al, but it's not about. Right, you know, right, right. Elmo runs around. He's three years old, and he's running around. I know. But he's a monster. He's got to know it. But anyway, I'm trying to think of. Does anybody ever remember that they've written a show? Wait a minute. Who wrote the show where Elmo was getting thrown into the basket? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I think that might have been. Oh, that was me. I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that you, uh, 
Oh, he was curled up. He was curled up like and throwing him into the basket. Right. He came right down from research. Like, you can't throw Elmo. And the thing <laughs> was, was that he had already done that in another show. He had done that in an interview. Yeah, because I think years that Lou, I think, had done years ago. There was but there's occasional that you'll have a sit-down with the research department and the executive producer, and we'll have to say, like, you know... These are and, and these are why yes why why well, and sometimes they'll say no research is right and sometimes they'll say mm-hmm. for the most part we have a good relationship but sometimes mm-hmm. you come to an impasse and you go no it's got to happen <laughs> well, I think that's also because we're so far along we know what will fly and what won't right. so you don't put stuff out there that's not right John Stone who, who was one of the founding fathers of Benjamin yeah. Franklin directed the show forever <laughs> yeah John used to say when you get stuck. Throw the puppies. Yeah. <laughs> and he was right. And it works every time. Yeah, it does. Of course. Oh, trade secret. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know what? It's yeah. still funny. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's still funny. Um, and, and then, are, do you guys go to the set for production? How does that work? Oh, yeah. 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 I'm, there, I'm there almost every day. Um, well, sometimes I'm there as working as a puppeteer, mm-hmm. but other times I'm there just to make sure everything goes smoothly. But most writers come to the day of their taping and watch to make sure and then if, if a problem arises we have to cut the show for time. Yeah, or but that. that's another amazing thing about this show is that they're they are really respectful for the most part, especially once you get to the studio, like they won't mess with it. But they'll check, but they run it by There's a freedom to improvise, I think, amongst Wait, the public. Oh, sure. What are you saying? We <laughs> give them the freedom to like they because they they do make it funnier. Oh, oh, the performances. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. No, no. But if they, if there's something they want to cut or need that to cut for time or whatever, they run, you know, that they bring us really in on it. But really, and this I think is unusual in television, is what you see on the screen is pretty almost word for word of what you've written. I mean, yeah, they will add in a line here and there, but for but what you really write, you you see done. Yeah. And it's very gratifying when you go to the yeah. studio. I mean, I still go in there all giddy every time yeah. because it's exciting to be there and it's fun to be yeah, in there. And, you know, when you have a, a job that's so isolated, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, to be around fun. other people and yeah, to see people. Yeah. <laughs> and to see them, them make something. That's how it goes. <laughs> it's fun if it's a good show. Yeah, if it's, it's going show, well. Yeah. If it's so not, you're in Queens. Well, you know, like, like, um, and the exception of Joey. With the exception of Joey, the writers are the only people on the set who are not really working that day. Sure. You know, we're there to enjoy and to give advice if need mm-hmm. be. But, uh, yeah. Which is often the case on a sure. TV show. Uh, absolutely. Often the writer's just there to make sure they're saying the words. And that's the fun part. Uh, absolutely. I, I've never seen such a, uh, at least on the surface, well-adjusted group of writers. Oh, that's very yeah. good. <laughs> we put on a very good On the surface is the key phrase. <laughs> All right, good. Thank you. Take a little deep. Yeah. Um, Not much. Let's, let's talk about how each of you got into this uh, and your experiences in writing before coming to Sesame Street. Uh, and Joey, let's start with you. Did you start um, as a performer? I started as a performer. As I said, I came to the set and I said, this is what I want to do. I went back to Fordham University borrowed a bunch of crap from the costume department, started building puppets. My parents thought I was nuts. What were you studying there? I was studying economics and theater. I was studying economics only as a ruse. (laughs) My parents didn't send me to theater, and I was double majoring in theater. Uh, I wound up dropping that because I started working on the show senior Mm -hmm. year, and I would have to stay in half a semester extra to get my... Uh, How did you gain entry to the show? Uh, a woman came in who was probably one of the greatest puppeteer females ever. She's hilarious. I shouldn't even say female. You shouldn't say females. No, she was. She's. She's the greatest. One of the greatest puppeteers. Just really. For a girl. Girl. <laughs> you know what the thing is? She wasn't a great puppeteer. The thing is, she wasn't a great 
really funny woman. Yes, she's just a really funny woman. She came and taught uh, comedy improv uh, to my class. Well, you haven't said her name yet. Yeah, Camille Benora. Oh. Uh, yeah, now Camille. I mean, I knew that. She's hilarious. Uh, and she came to teach, and I, at the time, was volunteering at a, a uh, like a nursery school. And we would watch it, and I thought it was hilarious. I would watch it and thought it was funny. She, and I said, what do you do? She goes, oh, you don't know. I do any hands. And she said what she did. I said, oh, I saw that. You did Meryl Sheep, and you did that accent from Sophie's Choice. And it was hilarious. And she goes, oh, you watched Choice? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. And she said, Jim's coming in to, uh, to do the show. Do you want to come and visit? And I said, yes. And uh, two years later, she finally said, oh, you could come, because she forgot to get me to play. And I thought it was over, and I was lighting the show. She goes, I told you you could visit the show. And I went and saw Richard and I just fell in love with the job. And I saw all the guys, but mostly Richard, because he had the crew packing up and I said, that's what I want to do. Um, and then I started puppeteering on the show. Kevin Clash brought me in. Uh, we had to do a workshop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you talk about that for a minute? The puppet workshop? Yeah, you sent no, it. I sent in a tape. Uh, I would make my own puppets. I sent in a tape and Camille was really nervous to look at the tape because she thought it was going to be awful. She said it was pretty good. She sent them along to Kevin who thought it was good. And I was not very good as a puppeteer because I was just learning. Because a lot of these guys had done it since they were kids. But I went, I remember they said, uh, just put, bring the puppet up and have him um, say something to Jim. This is for Jim. What would you say to Jim? Mm-hmm. Most kid, guys were just coming up and doing the alphabet or anything else. And I just went up and started giving dating tips to Jim. Uh, <laughs> with the puppet and Kevin thought that was really funny and he started he sort of started bringing me in for his own projects in Baltimore and then for the shop Mm -hmm. and I was doing that for a couple years and then we did so many shows that the the producers would ask the puppeteers to come up with ideas if we had any characters we wanted to do you remember when we would do that we'd have to go to the they said go to the shop put on some puppets and put put them on tape and let the writers look at them. And I remember I was trying to work on this comedy team with David Rudman, who also does now Cookie Monster and Baby Bear. And it didn't go well. It was Willoughby and Lester. It wasn't very fun. But we did, um, I did Columbo. I just had a sheep. I saw a sheep and I said, oh, I'm going to do a parody of Columbo. And I did Columbo and he solves nursery crimes. Like, what happens with old mother hoverings? And I put, it, I put it on tape as like a little ad. And they, the producers thought it was funny and they said, do you want to write? And I was terrible at writing. I didn't know a comma from a semicolon. I said, no, I don't want to. And they said, we pay for the audition. I said, yes, I want to do it. <laughs> and I did it. And uh, I remember my, one of my first bits was for a character that never went anybody. This doctor character, what was his name? Doctor, uh, it was like he was like Nobel character. Price? No, he yeah. was like the character from, who was the character of Mary Poppins, that actor who's on the ceiling and he's an old oh, time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ed Wynn. Dr. Ed Wynn. Right, that's right, right. And I remember doing it, and I remember putting in the words, the character couldn't do something because he couldn't have a vowel movement. And I remember that they thought that was very funny. I think that got me a job. The Did they leave that in back then? We never shot. Oh, the vowel movement. I, was going to say. I think the vowel movement yes. got me the job. Oh, so what makes sense? <laughs> when you had to sit down and write that audition script, yeah. I mean, presumably you had seen scripts, you knew what they looked like. Oh, yeah, because I was right. I was puppeteering for right. three years. So, but did. What was that process like for you? Did you know how to actually get it down on the page? Uh, Norman Stiles was the head writer at the time, and he really was an enormous teacher. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was rough. He was hard to, to work. It was back then, he would just kind of pitch it. Not even pitch it, he would just write it and hand it in. And, but he taught me all about structure, about beginning, middle, and end. And he, was, he would hate, I mean, he was really against sketches that didn't end. And he said there was way too much television that had sketches that had a good beginning, a good middle, and never ended. He's not wrong. So he was, uh, he was big on it having us find that twist or that's why to get it so he's an amazing teacher uh, but I, I remember being terrified the first day they shot anything in mine 
And I remember it was terrible. It was not good. It was, it was <laughs> and I remember being in the in the in, on, in the studio, and John, who was awesome to me always, didn't know I was in the room, and so he said, "You want to do another?" He goes, "That ah, shit's not worth it." I was like, "Oh." <laughs> Um, do you remember how much you were writing before you finally got that one that was shot? Uh, it was, it was, I, this, it, my audition scripts didn't get... You would have to do two audition sketches. Then I had to do an audition script, and the audi- like a full audition script, and that was what got shot. And that was the shit that wasn't worth it. Wow. <laughs> Norman saw something that was worth keeping me on for. But, it, but John was right. It wasn't worth it. It was easy puns, and it wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it takes a long time to learn how to write the show and to write the characters. Yeah. It really takes... What do you think? I mean, besides that thing of entertaining the adults and the children and yourselves and the voices, meeting the curriculum, the voice tone, is, is that what you're saying? Because the characters. the characters are so clearly developed. Sure. Do you think I actually have problems with the ones that are? Well, yeah. it's a very specific you'd be amazed. Time. You'd be amazed at how writers do. They're right. They, I don't know. Well, and, and Big Bird, especially, is a more Big Bird's tough. He's a more complicated character than and even El- well, not Elmo's. Much Big Bird, I had the longest time it took me. Yeah. Well, I, you know, uh, when Norman was the head writer, I went through the audition process. Mm-hmm. It was similar to what Joey was describing. I, you know, I remember uh, talking to him at one point early on. I said, "Is this?" A, he said, "No, no, no." He said, "You're hearing the characters. That's amazing. You're hearing the characters." And I do think that that's sort of what we're talking about. It's mm-hmm. some people do and some people don't. Yeah. And you just I sit in front of my keyboard and I actually do the voices. Yeah, sure. loud you, yeah. we all do. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's the only yeah. way. Yeah, no, it's yeah. absolutely yeah. the only yeah. time. Yeah, it's here in my head. I just do it out loud. She's shy, yeah. even with herself. Oh my god! <laughs> I also think there's certain characters that certain writers get more. Uh, like a, there's certain characters mm-hmm. I, I gravitate to more, and that's easier true. for me to write. This is something I wanted to ask about. What are the, those characters that you tend character? to speak to? For me, it's Baby Bear and Tell. Yes, absolutely. But for whatever reason, and if I if I'm under a tight deadline, I think everybody here would say Telly. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I want to talk about Telly for a minute. Telly's the greatest character. Well, yeah. Telly is my wife's so favorite puppet. We always think of him as like the the Muppet for our generation. Telly is and neurosis. Yeah, but he's all sort of neurotic. He's, he's yeah, but he's like he's like he's conflict. Everything is conflict for him. It's not just cookies. It's not just everything is a disaster. He is saturated with anxiety. Yeah, which, which as all of us as, as, as living in the government shutdown. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the key to him. And and there's a brilliant puppeteer named Marty Robinson mm-hmm. uh, who uh, you give Marty you get mm-hmm. you know oh, you just feel comfortable when you give Marty anything. Yeah. Real, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just a really good Yeah. yeah. Uh, so tell me how, how you got into this uh, business. What, what kind of writing were you doing before? Uh, I, still, still he's I'm going to take a moment to say John Weidman is an amazing Broadway playwright and has well, written I have an, odd, about I have an assassin's career. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I work primarily in the musical theater and I have since I wrote my first show, which was Pacific Overtures with Steve Simon in 1975, and that's really been. The, the main part of what I've done. I was an editor of the National Lampoon magazine when it mm-hmm. first came out, and um, when Animal House came out, everybody was an editor, there was a small group that became screenwriter, automatically. Yes. And so I wrote three or four youth comedies for different studios, and they would go through two or three drafts, and then it would stop. <laughs> and I remember, uh, well, it was fine, but I didn't care for a while, it was fine, flying back and forth West Coast, first class. You're still writing theater as well? Yeah, yeah, that's, this is, there's always been companion pieces. Great. And um, 
uh, I came home after the fourth screenplay got stopped, and I, and I thought, you know, this is what am I doing? I thought, you know, the John Weidman Film Festival is playing on my shelf, <laughs> and, I, and I came into the living room, and my daughter was uh, sitting on the couch, and she was watching Sesame Street. I think she was two or three, and um, in fact, um, uh, I Sesame Street was not on the air when I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't much for kids on the air when I grew up. Um, so I actually had sort of never seen the show before. I was aware of it. This is cultural sure. And I sat down and I started watching with it. And I thought, this, you know what? This is worthy work. I, I mean, I was, it was a conscious, sounds pompous, but it was a conscious thought. And I thought, how do you do this? And I had a friend named Tony Geis, who was one of the great writers here forever and ever. And uh, who I worked with on different projects. And I called him and he said, well, no, he said, there's, you know, there's very few openings, but something. But there was an audition process you went through. Once I came in and I went through the audition process. And um, uh, I like got the show and they kind of got me. And it became, you know, it's, it's, it's been a constant in my life running alongside the other stuff that I've done ever since. And I feel really lucky to have had this particular thing balancing my other work. It's been great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, tell me, what, what do you get from each thing? Is, yeah, it, is well, it a different... Uh, health insurance. What do you get? What do you get? A paycheck one than you get. You figure out which one insulted by Ben Brandt. They use completely different parts of my head and I think completely different elements of my personality. I think the my life in theater is, is uh, a much... Although that squeaky from bit in Assassin's could have been a grover bit. When, well, it was, <laughs> when they end up throwing bullets at four, no, that could have been a grover bit. Okay. <laughs> if Grover were an assassin, he'd be squeaky from. And squeaky from could be a Muppet. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, the, the affirmative nature of this work, the fact that also the fact that it's not solitary, that I get to work with people mm-hmm. I really like. Um, uh, yeah, I think is that is that provides the main balance to the work in the theater, and, and it, it allows the work that I do in theater to be uh, more sort of downheaded and and uh, pessimistic in hot ways, because there's this uh, show which is a, a, a authentic balance to that, an authentic affirmative sure. balance to that. Absolutely, yeah, that's, just, that's amazing to yeah. be able to do both. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, let's talk about you. Okay. <laughs> Um, How did you get into this? Uh, what was your writing experience before? I had no writing experience really? before. That's <laughs> um, I, I was lucky enough to get a job here right out of college as a secretary. Uh, and um, I did that for a year or two, and I was working for the head writer and for the producers. And mm-hmm. um, I read every script that came across my desk. And um, when they were looking for writers... I think I was just cocky enough at the time to say, oh, let me give this a try. <laughs> Did you even see yourself as a writer? No, no, really? No. Yeah. I had no ambition in that direction whatsoever. What ambition did you have? Um, I, I think I wanted to go into acting at the time. But, okay. I, but the, the great thing about um, being a secretary and then I was a PA in, in other uh, positions was I, I got to see how the show was produced. Yeah and which considerations had to go into the script, which really matters, especially for when you're writing for puppets, because um, there are limitations to mm-hmm. puppets. You know, you can't just do a full-body shot very easily because there is no lower half. So, um, so uh, it, it, was, it was a great education in that way. Yeah. <laughs> 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 she still doesn't get it. <laughs> but uh, I've, been, I've been very lucky to have been... Uh, writing since, I guess, about three years in, into 
starting here. Um, yeah. Uh, did it come easily to you? What was, what oh, was the no. process like? <laughs> it's I assume you, you had to audition in the same way, right? Yes, I did. I um, went through the audition process. Do you remember the stuff that you wrote for that one? Yeah, it was probably pretty weak. Uh, Norman <laughs> Stiles, again, was the head writer at the time. And to his credit, I mean, he gave me a chance and he saw something in there that was worth pursuing at least. So I'm very grateful for, to him for that. Um, but I think I feel like I've been very lucky because I mean, how many shows uh, come back year after year? That's a regular sure. gig that you can write for year after year and rely on. Uh, and I've been really lucky that they give me um, not only the show that uh, I write for the series, but um, I write for a lot of outreach mm-hmm. initiatives, um, and um, that's really been wonderful and rewarding for me. We should talk about that. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about that, especially the military. Yeah, we, we do. Uh, we have a department that's called Outreach, and, and their whole function um, is to reach out um, to parts of the community that are maybe not... Um, underserved. Um, yeah, exactly, underserved. Um, and uh, the biggest thing uh, that we worked on uh, together was for military families. Yeah. Um, and we did, uh, there, there's a lot of hard topics to cover there. Um, we did three one, parts, right? You did three, three parts. Three parts for, for military families. The first was about deployment. The second was when a parent comes home injured. And the third was when a parent doesn't come home. So um, really hard stuff to write. But I have to say, very rewarding to write that because um, there are a lot of topics that parents uh, find difficulty talking about, so it's as much for the parents to give them tools and words and ideas sure. of how to address these problems as it is for the kids. Mm-hmm. And we've gone on to cover other topics, uh, most recently things about divorce, incarceration, when mm-hmm. a parent is incarcerated, um, things like hunger, hunger, hunger yeah. uh, financial insecurity. Financial, right? Yeah, they can yell at yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope you've got medication. Yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how do you approach these, and is there sort of a, a formula to them that that you've stumbled upon? Are there characters that you are supposed to use, characters that you find it useful to use? Uh, well, you know, these are very much, uh, we're very much involved with the research department mm-hmm. for these, for obvious reasons, because we don't want to do any harm here. You know, we don't want to put the idea in a kid's head, your parents might get divorced, right? So we're trying to, we're trying to, uh, to help here. Um, so they are very much involved right from the very beginning, and they bring in you know the, the foremost experts in the field. We have access to to the premier minds uh, who deal with this type of thing every day, and um, and then you know they come to me and I work up an outline, and you know it, it's on a case by case basis. But you know Elmo's always at the center of all of these because he's kind of the heart of the show, and um, and kids identify with Elmo the most. So um, we try to involve him as much as possible. There's other considerations too for military families. Uh, a lot of military families in our country uh, are Latinos, so we have Rosita, who is our Latina uh, mm-hmm. puppet character. Uh, she's been very involved in those too. So they're really, um, it's, it sounds weird to say, but they're enjoyable to work on. And I've heard uh, that they are remarkable. Uh, I mean, I've only heard these amazing things and Aww. being it's, told about them moved me to tears. Uh, <laughs> it's nice when you hear the impact and you know, yeah, and yeah. occasionally they send me letters that come in or something. And especially for things like incarceration, there's a lot of parents 
misinformation and things they don't tell their kids and don't want to talk about or don't know how to talk about, so it's nice that they do these. And I mean, Sesame Workshop, what other company would do this for free? And they, they put this out for free. They give it to the communities for no money. Yeah, I was going to ask that. How are they uh, delivered? Do they go to schools? They go to schools. They go to wherever they're in need, to psychologists, to military communities, wherever the need is. Uh, that's where they send these kits, and it's not just the DVD they have. A whole kit that goes with it, um, which is just amazing to me that this company, because we are a nonprofit and we really are a mission-driven company, um, I'm very proud of that. Absolutely, yeah, I, that, that has to feel good. It does. <laughs> uh, they put a kit. They yeah. put a kit together after 9/11, actually, with three shows that were one well, of the shows. Were the yeah. response. I mean, just yeah. to help kids deal with them. Did we write them? Yeah, John. Yeah. Yeah. John's yeah. fire yeah. show was yeah. on. Yeah. One of my shows was on there. Oh, not a bully. A bullying yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. there's a bunch of shows. Yeah, and they did. They put that out to help families talk to their yeah, kids. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, everything that made any major thing that happened. Yeah. In the news, I, it always comes up like we'll either answer with a PSA or we'll find a way to, like after Sandy, we cut together some hurricane shows that we had done in the past to oh, sort of answer. Um, they are great about that. The company's great about trying to be, you know, when kids are in need, whatever that need is. Is, is the creation of these, you know, if you guys sit down as a group, if they're not just being handed off to you, uh, Christine, if, uh, is the creation of these different than writing? You know, an ABC sketch or a self-control sketch. Well, the the um, the show that I wrote after 9/11. Yes, I mean the, the, mm-hmm. the curriculum was irrelevant. The, the, right. What the company wanted to do was to um, put something on the air that would address how our audience might be feeling as a result of. I mean, it's not right. about talking to kids about terrorism or, or airplanes or anything. It's just it's about fear of both. Just the notion that, that you've got kids this age who are aware of the fact that something traumatic has happened that who may have been traumatized by the fact of that trauma. And so, uh, you know, uh, we came up the show which there's a Elmo's having breakfast with Maria and Hooper store and there's a fire and the fireman coming up, everything's okay, everything's okay, and then it turns out everything was okay except Elmo, who's still really been traumatized by what happened. And so the firemen, you know, they bring him to the firehouse. It's a, that's sort of a conventional idea, but show him exactly how the firehouse works mm-hmm. and, and essentially by giving him information, sort of calm him down. And I think the show was effective, and I have to say, as the, as the writer, I mean, going to a New York City firehouse not very long after 9-11, you know, a place that had lost seven or eight firemen, um, it had a, a reparative, it was a reparative experience for me. Mm-hmm. That was one of the nice things about working here. And I remember hearing about that, too, when, when that uh, sketch was broadcast. That it, was, it was one of the first things that, you know, we can, yeah, came people up, could talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but right then away. the, the that, show that, that I did for that, t- for that kit was that actually addressed bigotry and like the story was that Big Bird's pen Big Bird was going to meet his pen pal for the first time and his pen pal is a bird and he comes to the street and when Big Bird tries to get him to play with Snuffy his best friend the bird says no because I only play with birds and I only associate with birds and I so we sort of it's like we covered we covered the the fear of the big explosion thing and then we covered you know racial stuff that could come up with it and then the third one was the bullying one, I think. When 
nice thing about when you when you write in metaphor like that is it's so many people take it to be applicable to their own situation. Mm -hmm. So um, you know they might take something different uh, away from that and, and and see how that can be utilized with their own children. There's a great, there's a, sort of the great power of Sesame Street is that it's uh, like even though they're fantastical characters and they're monsters and they're grouchers and everything else, they live in a real world and with real people. And they, yeah. There's a great power in those those stories that. Um, I don't think you could do it in any other format. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. animation couldn't have that kind of power. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's let's finish up by uh, breaking in to Sesame Street, which is a movie I would totally watch. Um, <laughs> heist movie, uh, stealing Oscar's gold. We know he's got it. Um, what, what was your writing experience before coming in, Belinda? I had just got, I wanted to write novels, so I had gone through like a, an MA program at NYU mm -hmm. to, you know, creative writing and all that, but um, to support myself I had been in production and advertising, um, like as a production assistant and then a producer, like in that crazy world. I never wrote advertising because I, I didn't want to do that and I wanted to be, a, you know, pure novelist or whatever, but um, <laughs> I, it turned out, I was looking to get out of advertising production for another kind of day job, and it turned out, just unbeknownst to me, that my aunt's cousin was producer, executive producer of Sesame Street, Dulcie Singer. So I went over to see if they had any jobs in production, and she said no, they didn't. And, um, and I just happened to ask, I don't even know what made me ask, if they ever needed writers, and she said, well, you know, you can be an incredible writer, you can be the best writer in the world and not be able to write for this show. It's like a very specific, you know, it's the adult kid thing. And she said, go, go watch the show for a month and turn in some samples. And I, and I did that, and I wrote some things, and they actually ended up taping two of, of those audition pieces. Oh, wow. It was like she called up and she said, this is exactly what we did. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, now, and then I then they gave me a show to do and I totally bombed on my first show. It was like a terrible thing. So then it took, you know, they started feeding me shows over the next couple what, of What do you years. think was different between those audition pieces and then the show and then the stuff you got to learn, you know, you learned the show and got to do Well, that. I think one was that it was a, one was a comedy insert, and so it was mm -hmm. self-contained, it was like two or three sure. minutes, and when I went to do a whole show, I had never written anything like that, I didn't know anything about structure, I didn't know anything at all about that kind of writing, mm -hmm. and, and I think I was really, you know, trying so hard, and I, <laughs> and I also think that I didn't know the sh that it took so long for me to learn the show, and I used to just read... Like you were saying, reading scripts, that's all I did. Like for years and years, I would just read other, because I was so nervous and I would just kept reading people's <laughs> scripts and trying to take it in and learn how to... It works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so I mean, one of the advice we always get on these panels is find the show you like and take it apart, reverse engineer it. Right. And it sounds like that's, that's really what you did. Yeah, and getting to know these characters. And then mm -hmm. finally they gave me, uh, I think I quit my job and it kind of took a risk that this would work out. And eventually it did work out. <laughs> and I, I also, it's worth saying that, um, you know, yeah, we're all neurotic, disturbed, troubled people. We're <laughs> doing something else for a living. But the, the, um, when Belinda and I arrived here, the, there was... You know, sort of the, the last of the old guard in mm -hmm. writing, and the, the writing corps was still here. Tony was here, Judy was here. And this has always been an enormously generous group. The, the, the um, uh, people are enormously supportive of each other. 
Um, and uh, the, I found that world when I, when I got here. And so that, yeah, I read scripts all the time, too. But if you wanted to talk to somebody, they made themselves available. And, they, you know, it was it, it, the, the, the sensibility on screen is actually sort of, you know, refined sure. around the offices as well. That's great. And in the studio, too. I mean, that was always my thing. Yeah. It's like they're as nice to children there as you would hope they would be. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just everybody is, is they're good good people. It had sort of like a hippie-ish sort of feel when we first started. It was sort <laughs> totally. of a 60s kind of mentality mm-hmm. that stayed for like 20 years, I think, at least. <laughs> really. Well, it have to, right? I mean, doing what you do, putting on the screen what you put on the screen. Comes across. Yeah, yeah. It comes, and it's in everybody's personality too, and that's why I think we all. Not me, I hate kids. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fool us. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, let's finish up the breaking in. Uh, Molly, how did you start? Okay, so I actually always wanted to write for kids. That's all I ever wanted to do. Really? Um, yeah, which I think I don't know. I'm like, what's wrong with you? In what capacity did well, you? Well, you know. I just no. I had a. I actually had this weird epiphany when I was a kid. There's this writer no one's going to have heard of. His name is Hilaire Belloc. What? Hilaire Belloc. Heard of him? What? What do you think? Come on, salt. Salt. Oh, I didn't mean to insult everyone. See? We're going to break it down. That was so Boiling. What John said? No, we're not supportive of you. I well, no one had heard of him when I pulled the book out of my father's bookshelf. But when I was a kid, and I started reading it, and I just it just it made me laugh in this way, and it it was I think I was feeling on, gloomy. I was a gloomy little kid. <laughs> Seriously, and I just thought this is a grown up doing this and making me mm-hmm. laugh like this, and making and you know not like treating me like an intelligent human being and I don't know I really just had this thing where like if there's any way I can make a living doing this I'm going to try and so I actually when I got out of college put together a collection of comic verse that was they were Belloc-ish <laughs> at least I wish they were and I had a friend who was a book agent and she was shopping it around when I got pregnant and had twins and so then I sort of put everything on hold and started watching Sesame Street with my kids obsessively. The, and the thing is that, you know, does every, uh, this show when I was a kid, Bullwinkle, had, gave me that yeah, same thing. I know no one will have heard of Bullwinkle. I know I was the only one who got Bullwinkle. You guys think you got it, but that's it. So Bullwinkle gave me that same thing. Every Bullwinkle viewer, right? <laughs> Um, so when I started watching Sesame Street, I got a Bullwinkle feel from it. You guys know what I mean? It ha- I mean, Bullwinkle mm-hmm. wrote on two levels. I was a Looney Tunes man, my friend. You were what? I was a Looney Tunes man. Oh. Well, yeah. Bullwinkle, I think, was a little more adult. It was. It was more sophisticated. Yeah. People who read Hilaire Belloc <laughs> <laughs> watched Bullwinkle. So in any case, um, I, started, I knew the show, like I watched every day for two years, and then this weird thing happened. My sister called me and said, I've got a date with this guy called, no, I had a date with this guy called Jeff Moss, and I think I like him, but I want you to have dinner with him with me and see what you think. She, she did that a lot. She, she wanted to vet him with me. So I went out to dinner with my sister, my husband and I. 
went out to dinner with my sister and Jeff Moss, who I don't know if you know who that is. Okay, so Jeff Moss wrote, I Love Trash, People in Your Neighborhood, Rubber Ducky, was one of the original creators of the show along with John Stoner. Wow. And he was a head writer for a little while. So um, we, it was sort of similar to what happened with Joey. He started talking about Sesame Street, and I knew every, <laughs> everything cold. I could sing every song I could do. So he asked to see my my verses, my comic verses. And when after he read them, he said, well, it would, you know, it would be great if you could get this published, but in the meantime, if you need some he money, said, These which are so I did. Balakian. <laughs> <laughs> That's why she and Bullwinkian. And Bullwinkian. Um, he said, do you want to try an audition and see what happens? Was he head writer at the time? No, Norman was. He was just trying to get Norman was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was just trying to get yeah. Well, you know, you know, and that's fine with me, because right. here I am, 25 that's years right. later. That's right. uh, and they got married. What those auditions, did they? They did, they ended up getting married. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, do you remember what those audition pieces were? Um, I did one for, you know, I did... <laughs> you know what, I actually do remember that there was one for, for Kermit that involved... Him eating flies, like I didn't. My first couple really didn't. You know, it's like that. What everyone oh, yeah. would do, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, but it's also similar with Belinda that I did when I, the, I think it was my third audition piece. Norman said, "You're going to be fine. This is going to wow. be great." And I thought, "Oh my God!" Oh, no, 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 never said that. Yeah. Really? I know, but then I turned. But then I turned. That never happened. That never happened. That never happened. Get Norman on the phone. Get him on the phone right now. I swear to God. But then I turned my first script in, and oh my God! Yeah, you know, remember what I said last week? Yeah, you're not gonna be fine. Oh, no kidding. Seriously, it was very touch and go for me. Really? Oh yeah. I had a rough time in the beginning. But everybody, but Norman said to yeah. me, there are a lot of writers who, who are doing this a lot better than you are. <laughs> I was so <laughs> oh. He told it like, but also we have to repeat that he taught us all. He taught us that we taught us all. He, 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 he let me the 2,000-year-old uh, man records. Oh, me too. Uh, yeah, like, and I had never, I like, heard, I never heard, heard of it. Oh, my parents And now I stole that whole character up. <laughs> reading Hilaire Belloc while I was Pull that off my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes so much sense. I mean, that that vaudeville mentality, which you know became that Sid Caesar mentality, which I mean, so much of Sesame Street comes from all of that. It's it's still there, I think. Am I wrong? No, you're totally no, right. You're right. I just like to tell them right. You're right. You are. Then you're okay. Um, I want to uh, take a minute and talk about Elmo. No, that's wrong. We're not doing that. <laughs> All right. When I was growing up, there was no Elmo. Elmo was not the center of the show. Uh, and you guys have been here, I think all of you for the most part, right, have been here long enough to see this character come in and sort of take over the show. Yeah. I, I remember watching. I actually, Elmo was just, <laughs> when I started watching the show, Elmo just started to uh, sort of take a main <laughs> focal thing. When, when I, was, I was like, it was in the mid-80s, I think. Okay. I, remember, I remember being immediately like, the energy on this character is amazing. And I think what you had was, you had all those main Muppeteers like Jim and Frank, they were doing a million other things. They were doing, the Muppet Show was already a huge success and they were making movies. And you had even Jerry and Richard who were other guys that were on the show, they were going around and going away a lot. And all of a sudden this fresh voice came on the show. Didn't he start with another Muppeteer? Oh, yeah, it Richard. did start with Richard, Richard and, and Brian Neal actually. Yeah, and it was Ryan very Neal hard to listen yeah. to. But, but uh, Kevin and then did Kevin it, did it, and it just became magic. I really, yeah. I was immediately attracted to Elmo and what he brought to the show. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and from what I wasn't here when it started, but Elmo and David, I mean, Kevin and David Core came up with how he spoke, I believe. In that, um, the, that it's weird, though. There is a, there's a percentage of the population that has just never come around to him, but if you if you step back, he he's so incredibly musical. He's mm-hmm. got he's, he's also, great musical sensibility. He's a, he's really, he's very funny. But if you, if you let there's him. two different, I think there's also two different kind of puppets on the show. There's Big Bird who started off as the kid, the kid mm-hmm. on the street. He's supposed to embody the kid on the street. And then there's er, Ernie Bird who are pure Adam and Costello comedy. And there's the insert characters like Cookie Monster that's just pure comedy. And then there are the characters like Big Bird who are supposed to embody the kid that's watching. And I feel like Elmo mm-hmm. came on and, oh my God, does he embody the wonder of youth. And, mm-hmm. and to watch Kevin do it was incredible. Kevin really was like a little, like he just had the magic of the kid. Yeah, I mean, you read about it. I've seen the, you know, the documentary and, and read the, uh, the Sesame Street history. And, you know, you read about how a character pops in the way that a movie star does. I mean, you, he did, you see he it, did. and, and Kevin, obviously did. Kevin's an amazing um, how did How did this character come to be, as you say, uh, John, the center of the show? It was Alma's yeah. No, I mean, no, he, he started that. growing and growing. Yeah, yeah. It really does. Just, it was gradual. It was just sort of an expanded to fill thing. I mean, Big Bird was is still perceived as the, the iconic character at the center of the show mm-hmm. when I got here. but And I couldn't tell you when it was, but gradually Elmo sort of expanded to occupy that space. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a reaction of kids. Kids, and it's yeah. even now. Like, kids hear the voice and oh, see yeah. that character. Yeah. And there's something in the design. There's something so pure in that design. If you look at it, it's just it's just primary colors and basic shapes. And you just, it, something, there's a primal thing yeah. with kids. But, I, but I do think when once he, when we then did Elmo's World, that that really launched oh, the launched start. Yeah, yeah, when, yes. when did that start? That was uh, 1990. And Judy huh? Freudberg really spearheaded oh, that. Yeah, Judy Freudberg. She was passed away, but she's she was, uh, yeah, she was the the head writer on that, and she created really it was her idea mm-hmm. to take takes like Elmo exploring one simple thing mm-hmm. in many many different ways, and that just uh, I think that gave him sort of his own sure. It, it yeah, it isolated him. It became sort of his own sitcom. Right. Yeah, yeah right. that's interesting. But also, so Tickle already had, had, like, Tickle Me Elmo had already had. Right. right. Like, but I think also, it's, it's a, if, the, if the writers respond to the character, it's a great, yeah. Then they say, it's it's like, you know, when, when we try to create a, a character right from the get-go and say, make a star, it, it barely ever happens. But Elmo, or, you know, Elmo just gradually, mm-hmm. he grew. I mean, people saw something in him and started writing more and more. These yeah. things happen organically. Yeah, they yeah, do. And anything, you know, unlike... Uh, a lot of the characters, he was not defined. He was never defined by one particular idiosyncrasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that, that's true. You know, so that he was available uh, to be the, the surrogate kid right. on the show. In that, in a similar way to Big Bird, sort of an every boy type of yeah. character. And yeah. I think that's why Christy, you can use him in every one of those. Um, you couldn't do that with Cookie Monster. I mean, you just do right. the dimensions aren't there. <laughs> so you leave Cookie Monster alive. I love him, but it's weird to bring him to deal with an injured soldier. He's also younger, so you get that vulnerability. He's younger, and it's the vulnerability. It's his curiosity. Yeah. You know, it's his curiosity. So in all of these cases with these, you know, difficult programs, that um, it's not Elmo necessarily who's going through right. it. You know, but he's very curious about his friend whose parents are divorced. Mm-hmm. And, and empathetic. And empathetic, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he's he's. If Elmo's not allowed to divorce, what does Elmo have to do? Exactly. 
Um, were, you guys must have been here for some of the other sort of pivotal moments in Sesame history, like the outing of Snuffleupagus. He's gay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even aware. I heard that for next season. <laughs> Maybe you yeah, It just before. happened when I started. Or they were, no, 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 no that's not before true. I got yeah, they were trying mm-hmm. to figure out. I mean, they. they I, but I did never, you know the reason? Why? Yes, because yes. they wanted kids who mm-hmm. were telling adults something. But they wanted the adults to believe the kids. Because they were, there were times, I mean, it was a lot of kids who were, uh, I think, being molested, and parents wouldn't believe them. Yeah. And we didn't want to model kids telling parents something. And the parents saying, "Oh, that's you know, crazy story." You're making that right. So I think that became. I wasn't here, but I believe that's the story. Yeah, that's what I remember. I do remember that, and there was a lot of discussion about that, and you know, should they bring? And then I think it was the year I started. Maybe they were writing that show. Yeah, it was right before I got here. Yeah, yeah, before I got here. Um, what were some of the other big events that you guys have been here for? Went around the corner. Oh, <laughs> back again. <laughs> talk about that, or should I just shut up? No, please, no, talk about it. Oh, warts and all. <laughs> Absolutely. At some point, uh, uh, well, in the 90s. It was 1993. Sesame Street had very little competition. I mean, there was, this was sort of the kids' show that was on, and then, and then really? all that changed, and pretty soon there was a vast array of other shows. And so there was a push to see if there was could do something dramatic that would um, be dramatic. And, and so there were a lot of discussions, and, and the decision was made to expand the set. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? I do remember. Okay, around the corner. So this <laughs> the whole other world was created around the corner. Were you watching? Were you at the uh, age to no, watch no. at that point? And um, yeah, I remember Elmo about it, honestly. Oh, right, yeah. It lasted I, maybe two or three years. I mean, it was. Yeah, we hired Ruth Buzzy to be in Yeah, the Ruth Buzzy, who was great. I love Ruth Buzzy, was great, but she was kind of a, the kind of character who, who existed in other children's show that mm-hmm. we had always resisted. A kind of eccentric uh, woman who came out of. And it was our fault, not hers. No, it wasn't her fault at all. And, and, but it, I mean, we quickly discovered that it diluted the neighborhood experience <laughs> of the show. It was too much. We had two set, too many characters. Too many characters. characters. It, it just should have been a spin-off of anything. It never should have been anything. Yeah, it was it not a big disaster. It had one great uh, thing in it, which was the, the Furry Arms hotel, hotel, which was a, a Muppet-sized hotel. <laughs> Soon uh, to be a new <laughs> Which, yeah, never... But, yeah, the idea never went away, but that was great, because it was this hotel that was Muppet-sized, sort of wedged between two buildings, and you'd have guys like Michael Jeter trying to come in there to, to spend the night at a hotel, and everything was Muppet-sized, and there were penguins slipping on things, and the, you know, they would freeze the lobby of the hotel, so everybody was skating. It feels like, like, like a, a Muppet show vibe. Right. Uh, it totally had a Muppet show vibe. We had interesting characters. We had two idiots who ran the show, who ran the hotel. It was great. It was really great. Funny. We've now revamped that. That's now we're doing a new nice. series with CDBs that was just announced yesterday. Oh, got it now. Based on the yeah, yeah. 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 the Furchester's changed now. They changed some characters. <laughs> but that's you know so like a, that was a big deal mm-hmm. and a, a big deal that didn't work. And so um, we came back around the corner. Yeah. I don't know how long. Well, and then also the, the huge deal was the Mr. Hooper show, but I don't think any of us were there. I feel like that predates you guys. Yeah, yeah. Like, the wedding. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, the wedding, um, that's right. Maria, 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 and did these things, I mean, it feels like it all happened very naturally, but these must have been big choices among they were, the writers. It was a different show, though, because we had, this, we had so many, sh- we were doing so many shows that people actually knew the humans as a community mm-hmm. because there were so many shows that, yeah. you know, yeah. that you were living with all these people. Now with 26 shows, it felt like it was so, so totally pivoted, too, to be more Muppet-central. 
pretty Muppet centralized as the main character. It wasn't. Yeah. About but I mean, think about it. 110 shows. Can yeah. you, I mean, I, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. But it was like there was, it was almost a new show every. Well, I mean, there was constantly a new show. Well, so you really knew everybody. Yeah. It was time for everybody. We yeah. shot two shows a day. It was time for everybody. Yeah, that's right. Did you feel that crunch at the time, though, or was it... As a writer, because I was just starting out, it was great. Is like, you want another show? Yes, I do. Yeah. You do, like, eight or nine shows. And yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think I did 11 one season. <laughs> there, were, <laughs> there were 20... There was a lot of writers. Yeah, there were 20, 20 when, the, when we started writers? attracting, you know, that many... Yeah, I think there, there might have been a, at the top. At there the was top, a lot of writers. But, yeah, we had, like, half the staff got let go of <laughs> after we started doing less shows. That was sad. Um, before we wrap up, uh, tell me, uh, we, we mentioned Telly, and you guys all have affection for Telly, but are there characters that you would love to write? Why Grover? Why Grover? Why Grover? Because he, he's, he's an endless resource of comedy and getting things wrong. He's physically great. I, I, he's the best. I love Grover. <laughs> I love Oscar. Why do you love Oscar? Because it gets out of all the, you know, feel. <laughs> <laughs> Two head monster because you just use vowels and you just you don't even have to use words. Right. <laughs> I like writing for Baby Bear. I don't know Baby Bear. Really? But you know Telly there. They're, they're often yeah. together. They're very good friends. Best friends. <laughs> uh, we Baby Bear friends. Just, I don't know. But in the old days it was Telly and Oscar. Yeah. yeah. Back That's right. Yeah. Was that, that masochist. It was masochist. <laughs> but uh, you know, with Baby Bear for me, it's it's because of the puppeteer. So yeah. Yeah. he's just yeah. David Rubin. He's just yeah. Right. Yeah. so. Um, who knows? Who plays Cookie as well? Now. He does. Great. So and and I find Cookie too is easier to write for because of the puppeteer, and he's he's it's just one of those characters that you can hear it in your head, and you know hmm. how he's going to deliver the line and what he would do in that situation. That's so. an amazing thing to have that relationship. Seriously, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean. You know, I mean, yeah. that's what you want from an actor. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I... Let me guess, you like work to tell you Chris now, don't you? Yeah, I, I um, <laughs> uh, keep waiting, and I guess it might sort of happen to somebody who said, you can't write for telling, you just gotta write for somebody. I just, I, but I, I like all of Marty's characters because they've got a, an energy uh, that is really important and, <laughs> to me writing for this kind of show. And quite honestly, you know, sometimes it can paper over uh, writing that maybe isn't your best, because Marty just, I mean, and Telly is, is the best example of that. But he had a character, he's got a character he hasn't done for um, 20 years, called Shelly the Turtle, who's in oh, terms of, who's, uh, let's bring him talk back. as fast as Telly, but who had the same uh, sort of quality of, of emotional intensity, and it's like, he was a, he's, all Marty's characters are great. And the two-headed monster is just, Let's start here with Molly and going around. Uh, what do you watch on TV these days? What gets you excited, inspired? What do you guys talk about in the room if there, when there's a room? I was a big, um, I was a big Thirty Rock fan, huge mm-hmm. Thirty Rock fan actually. And then you know, okay, I've caved and watched Mad Men and you know <laughs> that stuff. Comedy-wise, actually, I just checked out the Mindy Project. Is uh, Mindy King Project? Mindy. I watched it. This I think it's just show. called the Mindy Project, Mindy though, isn't Mindy. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's There's that's I could get into that. That seems kind of funny. And I watch Colbert and John and. Sure. You have to get your news from somewhere. <laughs> yes, I've seen every episode of Downton Abbey. Okay. <laughs> I can't think of anything else. Those you are good answers. 
It feels like a gift 
that <laughs> this particular type of television has gotten so good. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, we just watched a, a eight-part BBC show called Broadchurch. Broadchurch, yeah. You see it? Doctor Who is so good. Doctor Who is really good. Oh, the Broadchurch. Broadchurch. And that reminds me, I was going to borrow the Borg in the first season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is great. Borg is amazing. Amazing. People go nuts for that. If you still got that, I might be able to Yeah, yeah, I have both seasons. I, I think the good wife is good. Oh, the good wife—that's that's great. Especially for a network show. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Well, if you're going to be like that, I'm absolutely going to be like that. I love Joey, what are you watching? Uh, Parks and Rec is in. The, I never miss Parks and Rec. Correct. That's like the most underrated. I can't understand how she's not won an Emmy. That show is like. I don't know why everybody doesn't talk about that show. It's just like it's it's, it's hilarious and it's like characters you. Every goddamn character I love. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, I just love that show. Like, I think Modern Family's good, but Parks and Rec is excellent. I think she, I love her. Yeah, I love her. She's amazing. You ever seen that? Like, she does a podcast with girls. It's really, I forget what it's called. She does like this girl empowerment thing. It just introduces like, real girls. Like, oh, I do like girls. girls. No, 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 girls. No, I know what she's saying. I can't wait for your take on girls. Yeah. <laughs> and Game of Thrones is, uh, I can't not, I love that show. <laughs> Game of Thrones is my favorite show. But see, but nobody I, in this room watches Louis C. I do, but sometimes oh, I, I, I stopped when, like, when he saw the homeless guy get hit by the bus. It was like two. It was like, like the first two. episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was the first episode of like shit. Joey's, I'm done. I saw a bunch of episodes before that. I just felt depressed. <laughs> I just wasn't, uh, I, I, well, he never been able to get into him either. I no, I love him. I think he's hilarious. I love his stand-up, but I, yeah. I suddenly felt down watching it. <laughs> well, like, the, the show that I did, I just love still is The Simpsons. It's just you can't get better than The Simpsons. It's just the visual it. gags alone, even if they're not saying anything, are so smart funny. Well, all, they've also gotten to the place where you're just living with these characters. Right. Yeah, right. and they can just live it. You can it's just a live in like this us. world. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so wait, what about you? Nobody ever asked me. Oh, <laughs> I'm asking. I'm all, asking. All the things you guys are saying. Justified. Yeah. Is Anything amazing. that we missed that you think is a big oversight? No. I love the new girl. I'm shameless about loving the new girl. Oh, okay. I love wait, isn't that a network show? This network show. I love what <laughs> a you love anything show. Larry does. You're a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> wait, what Listen, was the next? I, I go work for him. What yeah, was the next one you said? I said, new girl, I just love what a but basket that, case they went oh, for me. Oh, oh, I see. Uh, yeah. Oh, like, she's just crazy in that room on the show, right? Um, so you love a, seeing women as basket I like seeing any women as basket <laughs> It helps me really. Just Tell me it's my favorite. Uh, thank you guys so much. This was such thank a pleasure you. talking to you thank all. You guys. Thank you. Sorry for the interruption, folks. I hope you enjoyed that uh, interview with the writers. But I need to tell you about our other sponsor today. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out the service. You can download your choices and access them on your PC, burn them onto CDs, or upload them to iPods and other MP3 devices. It's quick, easy, fun, and affordable entertainment for people of all ages. 
One audiobook to consider is Street Gang, The Complete History of Sesame Street. This is a great book written by Michael Davis. Um, it's available on Audible. And the best part of this uh, is, and which I think kind of puts it over the top on getting the audiobook instead of the hard copy, is it's narrated by Carol Spinney, who has played Big Bird uh, for since 1969, since the show started for 40 years. Um, so check out Street Gang, The Complete History of Sesame Street. And then last week I also recommended the book that I'm currently reading, Jim Henson, The Biography by Brian J. Jones, which is a terrific, comprehensive biography of Jim Henson. So there's two books for you. Uh, for a free audiobook, go get Street Gang. You won't be sorry if you're interested in television, Sesame Street, or any of the stuff that we're talking about today. Uh, go to audiblepodcast.com slash nerdistwriters. That's audiblepodcast.com slash nerdistwriters, and you can download it for free. Uh, and I really highly recommend that. Um, and now we'll continue the trip to Sesame Street with um, a couple of new interviews. Uh, I got to go to the workshop where they build all the Muppets for Sesame and where they do all the costuming. And I talked to a couple of people, uh, including a Muppet Wrangler and uh, a costumer who's been there for, I think, about 30 years. Uh, so please enjoy those interviews uh, and then come back here next week for another special uh, episode that I recorded in New York. Who are you? What okay. do you do here? Uh, my name is Laura McLean, and I am. Um, I do a lot of different things, which is great. But um, some people just think of me as a puppet wrangler. Um, I do photo shoots. I do build puppets, and I puppeteer. And mm-hmm. um, I guess I walked through the door in 1992 um, as an intern, and then I got hired in uh, 1995. And it's a freelance job, what really? I do. So um, even though I've been around since then, it hasn't necessarily been totally steady, but I've been very, very lucky, especially in, in the last few years mm-hmm. of working very uh, steadily. Well, it seems like you're, you're doing all of these things is you're kind of catching all of the, the work that, you know, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a costumer, it's not necessarily a designer, but it's so many... It's aspects of all of these things. What's great is I can do a lot of different things. So if I was just a puppeteer, which maybe was my fantasy mm-hmm. uh, growing up, that I think I would be spending a lot more time sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring. Sure. So, yeah. Uh, but you get the opportunity to... Yeah, and because I'm here, I do I get the opportunity to... Uh, been very fortunate to... Uh, do a couple of commercials and you know uh, the snuggle fabric softener bear I get to do like his hands or his ears wiggling or something mm-hmm. like that and that's really great because not only is it fun and something I want to do it helps me get my health insurance through um, SAG after because yes. since I'm freelance I don't get health insurance are, are puppeteers covered through SAG after? Mm-hmm. I did not realize that yeah. you grew up with Sesame Street right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what brought you to the door? Was this something you always wanted to do? Did you try to you know, break in as a puppeteer first? How did it work? Well, as a kid, I, I was obsessed with the Muppets, the Muppet Show and Sesame Street, and I was a perfect age. I think when the Muppet Show was on, I was probably around 7, and I was watching it every uh, mm-hmm. Sunday at 7.30 or whenever it was on, and I just yeah, totally obsessed. And I, 
playing with my hands and doing voices and trying to imitate Miss Piggy. I think in first grade, <laughs> um, the kids would ask me to do my Miss Piggy imitation for them. And, and I, and, you know, even though uh, I don't love Facebook, what's nice is I get feedback now from kids that used to know me and they said, oh my God, you told me when you were this age that you <laughs> wanted to work for the Muppets and you're doing it. So that's what's, it's kind of, that's kind of cool to hear. That's so, great. And so I just, I kind of wanted to break through the television screen and get in there somehow. And I mm-hmm. kind of figured like they must be having a whole lot of fun. I just wanted to be part of that fun, mm-hmm. and I kind of, you know, and I, I, it was hard because you, back then there wasn't the internet, so it wasn't as easy to figure things out. And absolutely. So, what did you do? How did you start taking the steps, and and what did you study? Well, um, in high school, uh, you know, I, I guess I just was in all the plays, and I would sing, and I guess I figured that was kind of a, a way just to mm-hmm. become like a performer but um, I, I didn't really have much of an idea and I would just kind of play with my hands and lip sync in the back of the car and 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 hide behind the back of the couch <laughs> with the puppets that my parents had bought me I didn't really uh, I d- didn't really build much of my own puppets when I was a kid I my grandma helped me sew uh, some stuff together but I, I wasn't that into that I was more about just being loud and performing <laughs> in the house <laughs> but Jim Henson died when I was a, a senior in high school and um, interestingly enough, I guess I was taking a career class at the time, and I had just written a letter, you know, like a fake letter or something. It was mm-hmm. an assignment that I never sent to Jim Henson, and so then he oh. died. And my parents let me take the day off from school, and um, I had I grew up outside of Philadelphia, New Jersey, and they let me go to the memorial service, yeah. and that was kind of a big turning point in my my life, but. They didn't drive me. Ironically, I had to find my own way. I guess I just. I but just, you did. Yeah, I did. I got amazing. there, and it was it was it was amazing, and um, and I, that kind of put the fire in me to keep uh, pursuing it. And I guess soon after that, um, when I was in college at Sarah Lawrence, I overheard someone talking about an internship at the uh, the mansion, the Henson Mansion on. Um, 69th Street in public relations and I didn't care what it was I just needed to get through that door yeah. so I, I made sure I got that internship and then after there everyone was so really really nice and, and supportive and um, soon after I think I did puppet workshops uh, performing workshops with Jane Henson mm-hmm. and then I and, 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 but your entry was through that internship, through that internship to, to know people yep. and which every, is great everyone, advice for people I mean breaking into yeah, it's, it's this the, or it's, any industry I think yeah, especially a difficult industry. It's it's one of maybe the only ways to get in. Um, and then I jumped over to the um, Muppet Workshop for an internship, and I, you know, again, it was still not internet days, and I was writing a letter. I wrote a letter to Tim Miller, and he sent my uh, information over to Connie Peterson, who's still here today. And Connie was really nice and said, basically call me every week until I bring you in so I, I kind of I yeah. called her every week and then I got in for that si- summer so I was I guess I started in public relations in January stayed that spring term and then popped over for the summer and just went every single day as an internship at, at the workshop when that was on the Upper East Side and that must have been a fantastic learning experience it was I was just so happy just to be <laughs> in the environment and you know these days uh, kids would probably just oh put on your headphones or whatever, but I just like soaking it up like a sponge and ooh ooh ooh, ooh <laughs> sonar and listening to every everything. Uh, what were some of the things that you picked up in that time? 
that you remember being maybe game changers for you? Well, I think probably the game changers came more around when I when I got my foot back in the door, um, and I was and Connie was instrumental in getting me back. And basically, I was getting paid to sort big bird feathers, <laughs> and just hearing that the the wrangling position on Sesame Street was going to be available, mm-hmm. and the guy in charge, um, Ed Christie, he didn't really know me, but Connie did, and so. I actually, I remember overhearing the guy talking about how he was, you know, moving on to a different job and that it would be open, um, and I couldn't do anything about it yet until it was public, and as soon as it was, I marched into Ed Christie's office and I said, "This, I can do this, give me a chance, mm-hmm. and he kind of was like, who the heck are you? And I'm like, talk to Connie, she knows I can do it, and um, well, I, and I skipped the part of my life where uh, when I graduated from school... I went and worked for Sesame Street Live, so I did have some experience, and, and that was kind of that was. I remember the first two weeks working on that job was like the hardest thing I felt like I ever did. It really kind of kicked my butt. Sure. So, but then I got back and and, and marched into that office, and and they gave me a chance, and they, they were they were doing a a puppet video a Muppet video at Sesame Street, and they kind of it was kind of my audition. Hmm. And what does the wrangling involve? Um. I guess it, it's basically you need to know what's going on with the script, have all the characters there, um, you have all the props, and you're in charge of making everything work. And, and mm-hmm. so arm rods and rigging and making things make sure it look pretty on camera. From the workshop to production. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of the floor person. Yeah, you're, you're accompanying these puppets as they go. What are you enjoying about the job these days? Well, I... I, I I really, really do enjoy it so much because I feel like there was a time, I you know, back at, at uh, 9-11 when there wasn't a whole lot of puppet work. And um, like I said, this job's freelance, and I felt like, uh-oh, I better go try to be a real person. So I went back to school and got my master's degree and uh, taught on the Upper East Side also. <laughs> Everything's on the Upper East Side, I don't know why. Uh, for about... Two full years, including summers, and I would kind of do puppet things um, here and there, moonlighting when I could. And then I was fortunate enough that there was a show called Johnny and the Sprites um, from Disney that was coming, and uh, they asked me to work on it full time. And I was so so glad to get back to the puppets. And so I think because of that experience, that I I appreciate my job. You know, it's been. Um, like six years back since I quit uh, teaching and mm-hmm. so I'm just I'm so thankful that I can be in this and I feel like I can, I've thrown away my teaching books <laughs> and everything like that and I'm hoping that you know mm-hmm. feels like this is this is the right fit and well there's really come a time right when you have to fully commit to the thing you can't you can't walk in both worlds mm-hmm. at a certain point and that's um, true so congratulations that's great thanks glad, glad yeah. you're happy. thank you thanks for talking sure my name is Connie Peterson, and I am a costumer, and I have been here for 33 years, I think. Oh my goodness. Started in 1980. How did you get involved? Uh, I got involved via Sesame Street Live. Um, okay. The first year that the, the company wanted to do that, they hired Ray Diffin, who was my boss at the Metropolitan Opera, and he said, I'll do it as long as I've got Connie as my assistant. So we came as a package deal. Mm-hmm. And then the second year, 
he didn't want to do that anymore, so he left it in my lap, and I've been here ever since. So. And is, it was your background in theatrical costuming? Theatrical costuming, yes. I uh, did a lot of Broadway and oh, okay. the opera and so uh, on before I came here. How is this different? Um, and how is it the same, too? Well, when we, for instance, when we did Treasure Island, uh, all of my experience at the Metropolitan Opera making 18th century corsets for all kinds of different shaped ladies worked very well to just make 18th century corsets <laughs> for all kinds of different shaped puppets, which were very funny That's because terrific. I was trying to make them as real as I could for totally ludicrous creatures. <laughs> So it, it was a lot of fun. But that is kind of the thing. I mean, even just looking around here, the costumes, you know, like the, these grouch, this grouch formal wear, even, mm-hmm. there is a verisimilitude to it. Like there, there is something grounding them that you can put it on a crazy creature. That's right. Uh, for nine months, we had Snuffy over here uh, stored on his rack. Now he's over on the, the set, mm-hmm. but... Uh, last season we had to make a Swan Lake costume for him and so it's gigantic tutu and I made tutus in my past for you know the ABT and so on so I knew how to make a tutu and it was just a lot bigger than any other and had to have more engineering in it because normally tutus stick out horizontally mm-hmm. and this one had to stand up vertically to go around sure. his waist so I had to figure out how to oh, do that so without it falling down. What uh, yeah, what are some of those challenges that you <laughs> that you face when you know it's time to make a tutu for a snuffleupagus or something? Anti gravity tutu. Um, <laughs> well that that was a big challenge, both both in its engineering and in its size. Uh, let's see. Uh, things range from, uh, you know, what they were trying to make something. Uh, as, you know, we've been doing these uh, Cookie Monster, mm-hmm. um, Crummy Pictures Presents parodies and mm-hmm. trying to make them as evocative of the film as possible. Um, so sometimes it's a challenge of, of just being as as precise and parody as possible and other times it's just like right now I'm trying to get myself into the mindset of so what does a grouch named Trishini wear to her prom? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well it's like I mean you have to do a little bit of acting in your head mm -hmm. for this right? It's Mm -hmm. it's putting yourself into this character. I know that the basic description is that she's her dress is made of a trash bag. So, <laughs> so you have a jumping off point. Cogitating about, hmm. And how does she wear her trash bag? Absolutely. And what does she wear with her trash bag? I've got this pile of stuff over here. She's got to have a charm bracelet. Because this is, this is a, a flashback to oh, okay. when Oscar was younger and Trashini was his date. Uh, so... Since it's a since it's a flashback, I figure she has to have mm-hmm. a, a charm bracelet. So I'm trying to figure out what all goes into it. I figure it fastens with one of these dog clips and mm-hmm. so on. That's <laughs> so neat. Totally um, silly. 
So when you get a script like this, and there is, is there generally that kind of bare description? I would I mean, I would assume sometimes there's no description at all for the possible. I, um, we all work very, very closely with Jason, who's our, uh, our supervisor and artistic director. And so, you know, we, we talk it over with him. He goes to the production meeting, mm-hmm. so he knows what the director and the puppeteers have in mind of what they're going to do. Uh, and what so what the thing has to be able to accomplish sure and then we talk back and forth about what we think will do that and mm. so I, I just keep checking in with him to see if if he thinks I'm on the right track <laughs> yeah what kind of notes do you get on, <laughs> on costumes well, since since we're in such close contact, I generally don't get many. That's good. So, uh, and it, I mean, there are so few uh, customers, even designers here. I'm, I'm a little surprised. But like, you guys must obviously all work very closely together. We work very closely together, and when we need to increase our numbers, uh, we have a, a good pool of people oh, that we can call for. Uh, for shorter periods of time. There are very few of us who are actually on the staff. Mm-hmm. But, um, has it always been? I mean, you've been here for a while. Has it always been? No, we used to have a much bigger staff, and the, the company went through various yeah. phases of ownership and upheaval. And, <laughs> and during that period, we got shrunk down quite a lot. Sure. So um, is it? what kind of hours do you guys put in? It depends on whether we're shooting or not. Or, well, that's true. Sure. Uh, because Lars over here, who who works on set, and mm-hmm. uh, Liz, they just have to work until the day is done. You know, until they get all the shots that they. Yeah. And sometimes that, sometimes they wrap at five thirty, and sometimes they don't. And <laughs> um, we just have to. We try to stay within a thirty-five to forty-hour week, but. If, if, something, you know, yeah. if something has to be on camera tomorrow and it's not done yet, then we stay and do it. Right. So, um, are there are there pleasures you take specific to this job? Just that it's so silly. It's <laughs> the combination of it's being silly, and and being educational. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we do the domestic Sesame Street, but we also do the international Sesame oh, Street. And it, um, so there are productions all over the world. That some are in production, some are on hiatus, uh, but all over the world. And so it's made me feel very good to know that my efforts have helped teach little girls how to read in Pakistan and yeah, really Egypt exciting. and stuff that uh, where they might not be getting... An opportunity. There was a there was a wonderful documentary that, that Sesame did about the international mm-hmm. stuff that showed. I don't know whether it was the production in Bangladesh or I think it was Bangladesh, where there was a television in a little tent by the side of the road, and kids would just wow. sit in the street and watch that. It was, it's so different from here, and I was very glad to be able to be. It was one of two children's television programs on the air in the country. Mm-hmm. How unbelievably yeah. gratifying. Yeah. It's so so fantastic. Little kids that need to be little kids and need a chance to learn stuff and yeah. have a good time doing it. And yeah. So, it's, so I take great pleasure in that. And then 
I just delight in how silly how silly and fun the scripts are for the domestic show that keep the parents entertained as well as the kids because the children aren't going to have any idea about a lot of these movie parodies for instance but they're so spot on if the parents are watching they'll just crack up because they're so funny absolutely well that's that's the special magic of Sesame Mm -hmm. right I think it's it's for all of us a lot to to do with how long it's been on the air that you know that it has been satisfying to all generations yeah because uh, do people freak out when you tell them you work for Sesame Street oh they say oh you've got the best job in the world (laughs) yeah they they do stuff like that that's pretty cool neighbors in my apartment (laughs) yeah I've got a I've got a Sesame Street 40th anniversary jacket that Mm. I wear sometimes and somebody just came up behind me and said thank you oh my gosh (laughs) said your jacket Oh, I said you're welcome. That's fantastic mm-hmm. to be a part of that. Well, yeah. thank you so much. And Liz speaks so highly of you. So I'm glad oh, to well, get that's to chat. I, I speak highly of her too. <laughs> she she made one of the funniest things. What was it? She had to make a Halloween costume for Bert. He was supposed to be an alien, and it had instead of you know his two eyes and an eyebrow, it had three eyes. And an eyebrow. That's brilliant. He was, he was kind of um, inspired some, I think, by the... Uh, he had tentacles and stuff, which mm. reminded me a little bit of, of uh, Kodos and Clang, or whatever That's their names really are on The Simpsons. He was so funny. This thing that just sat like a, a hood and, and tentacles hanging around his neck and his eyeballs. <laughs> oh, funny. That's uh, great to be able to get that kind of freedom, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're told, if you're tasked with, yes. he's dressed as an alien, he's dressed you as get an to alien. do your take on it. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Nice. Well, so thank you so she's, much. She's done a lot of uh, making bird costumes for Elmo and <laughs> things that are very good. Well, I won't tell him. <laughs> I won't tell you, said so. <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com.